Back in the early 80s when I was attending seminary, Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky, there was probably no one scripture that was quoted more than the one you just heard from Chiv, although it was not usually in the, the translation called the message. We felt like that translation had something more to say to our congregation today as an ap application to our topic for the day. We have been uh, discussing the idea of identity, what it means to be identified as a Christian, what it means to be identified as a as a member of the First Methodist Church in Carrollton. As we thought, think about that and talked about that, one of the things that has sprung up among us was the idea that the people here want to be not only loving and forgiving, not only intentional and teachable, not only hopeful and confident, but finally for the next two weeks, we talked about the idea that they wanted to be whole and holy. Being whole and holy as a Christian has something very specific to say to the people called Methodists. Indeed, the doctrine of holiness that is often taught in so many charismatic denominations and in so many uh, other kinds of special assemblies, congregations, Nazarenes, holiness groups, springs from and finds its greatest strength in the theology of John Wesley, reformer and pastor in the Anglican Church, who was a very important part of the later part of the Reformation that took place more than 500 years ago now. In fact, last month, it was exactly 500 months or 500 years ago that the Protestant Reformation got its strong and beginning voice. For there on October the 31st in 1517, a man named Martin Luther posted the 95 theses on the door, the door of the congregation in Wittenberg called Castle Church. It was a response to the use of indulgences in the Roman Catholic Church of, of that day. In medieval Europe, the Roman Catholic Church was unwilling to accept reform. A new society was springing up in the culture, a new society that had something new and very different to share. It was energizing the people. The people were becoming different politically, economically, intellectually, and yes, spiritually. In the midst of that stood the Roman Catholic Church, the representation of the universal church along with the Eastern Orthodox of that day. And when you understood that, you knew that the source of authority for Christianity and indeed the very door to Christ himself was guarded by the Roman Catholic Church. In the midst of that along the way, they began to do something called selling indulgences which was a way that you could come to the church and buy indulgences for a price. And once you bought this indulgence, then your sin was pardoned. And you didn't even have to ask for forgiveness at that point. Because once you had bought the indulgence from the church, your sins were pardoned. That was the tipping point of the iceberg for this man named Martin Luther. He could not see that in scripture. He could not believe it as a church. And he thought that the church had gone way outside of what the church was meant to be. That emerged for him over the next two or three years after he posted those theses on the wall, giving them 95 reasons why what they were doing was wrong. But the church, being the church, didn't want to hear those reasons. However, Martin Luther continued to work toward this idea that the forgiveness of sins comes through faith in Jesus Christ as the scriptures teach. 
From his teachings arose the idea of the priesthood of all believers. That the way one receives forgiveness for their sins is to go to God in prayer, confessing their sins and their faith in Jesus Christ, who would grant their freedom from sin and forgiveness of their sins. In fact, he was so audacious as to say that the scriptures did not require a priest or a pastor in our tradition to do that, but yet every person could have access to the God of creation and to the one who provided for the forgiveness of sins. They call that the priesthood of all believers. And he said the founding principle for the authority in that church was the scriptures, not the pope, not the body of organized religion, not even the ancient fathers, but the scripture sola fide, only by faith and only by the word. Faith in the scriptures as they proclaim it was the true path to salvation. And this began a massive change in the church throughout the world, and the Protestant Reformation was born. Indeed, the church and history was changed by not only the work of Martin Luther, but by other saints like Zwingli in Sweden and others like him who stood up for this idea that the true church's picture is found in the scriptures and should not be, that authority should not be taken from anyone who represents everyone else. Now, it was a long, slow, and arduous process, but the fact that those saints stood up for what they believed to be true and the correct representation of the faith made an impact upon the whole world. Fast forward to today, we celebrate All Saints Day not only as an expression of the loss of the ones from amongst us who have gone to be with the Lord, but it's also another day in the history of our, of our country. It's a day that is called the, a special day for the persecuted church, a day when people are called to pray for the persecuted church. Not long ago, I read an article, a message written by another pastor who quoted several statistics I just want to share with you because he made the point that not a lot of people are as tied into really what's going on in our world today as they would like to, to think, especially Christians in the West, oftentimes are not aware of the, of the extent of martyrdom that is going on all around them. So let me read you just a few things to contemplate today on this international of prayer for those who are being persecuted in the Christian church. Proof of this fact he cites in these ways. 100 million Christians face interrogation, arrest, torture, and or death because of their religious Christian convictions and faith. Let that number seek in for you. 100 million. 100,000 Christians have been killed on an average day each and every year for the past decade. 11 per hour. 80% of all acts of religious discrimination around the world are directed at Christians, though we only make up 30% of the world's populations as believers. 70 million Christian martyrs have died since the time of Christ. 45 million of those have died since the 20th century. 45 million of 70 million have died since the 20th century began. On a day when we remember those who have given their life for Christ, given their whole selves, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and physically, how can we not remember the martyrs who are around us 
and giving their lives every day. For them, it's not a question to ask simply to determine someone's significance. It's not say, well, if, if you were a Christian and you were confronted and you had to reject Christ in order to live, what would you do? For them, it is an everyday, every hour occurrence for many of them who live in the sense of being persecuted and with full knowledge that if they are too brave about what they say, not wise about what they say, they will certainly die. And in story after story after story, when confronted with this fact by many people who are persecuting these peoples around the world, Christians have chosen not to recant their faith and to accept death at the hand of those who would kill them for what they believe and who they are. Forty-five million people since the 20th century began. Now, that washes over most of us because in the Western world, we think we're persecuted when we can't say openly a prayer in, in school, right? And that is religious persecution in some sense. Don't misunderstand me. But when you lay it up against someone who had to give their all to meet in a small house in a small village or town somewhere in order to praise God and who would not say no to that opportunity, even though they knew at any moment they might be captured, arrested, and tried, and indeed put to death. They held on. Our brothers and sisters went to worship in the Christian church in Pakistan. Remember? Not long ago. They were mowed down like... Not because of anything they did, but because of who they were. They were worshipers of the risen Lord. So in this day, this moment, at this time, right now, I want you to join me and let's just bow our heads. And let's give thanks to God for the faith that has been spread throughout the centuries by men and women and children who gave their all and were willing to give it because the Lord in whom they believed so deeply was the center of their very life. Their life was so hidden in Christ that they became like Christ and were willing to give up that life on earth rather than to be separated by words or acts of allegiance to anyone but their Lord. Father God, we thank you for them. We marvel at their courage and at their conviction. We pray, Lord, that if that time should come to us, that we would be so strong that we could say clearly with love and grace to those who would malign the Christ in whom we believe that we are committed, even up into and through the experience of death itself, to be true to our Lord and Savior. May we take the freedom that we have, Lord, to support these millions around the world in whatever way we can, not only through prayer, but through our encouragement and through our actions to say that the church of Jesus Christ everywhere acknowledges the faithfulness with which they live and the steadfastness with which they die. And may it continue to be, Lord, that every time those who try to wipe out the faith by taking the life of those who believe, that the blood of the martyr is like fertilizer 
fertilizer in the lives of men and women everywhere. When they see a people who are willing to give up everything that is earthly for their hope in Jesus Christ. Confident that when they die, yet they continue to live in the very presence of Christ. May we live a life that mimics their life. And in whatever way that it is called for in our own lives, may we be found faithful today and always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And we talk about the giving of life on this day, and we talk about the lives that we've known who've passed away. You know, you just never know how history moves on. It was just this morning when I got up this alley was pointing my attention to a text that came from my brother and my sister as they were sharing that my last aunt on my mother's side of the family, uh, aunt by marriage, had passed away. Our service would be this week. Wanda was a, a beautiful Christian who loved the Lord, served the Lord, and the only one left now in my mother's family is her. The oldest of the five children is the only one left amongst her and all of their spouses. And so at 92, she continues to live on and to model her faith. And we honor those who die in faith because that is, after all, the goal of us all, to give ourselves in faith. This text, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, really is a bit of part of a benediction, a prayer of grace, if you will, for the church that Paul is addressing. It's interesting that this, that this benediction is used so seldom in the church today. There are all other kinds of beautiful expressions of grace and faith that are shared throughout Scripture that are much more common than this one. In fact, before I went to Asbury Seminary, I don't think I'd ever heard it mentioned in a United Methodist Church, which is to our shame. It is a powerful passage, a passage that says it all simply when it calls for, in some translations, the entire sanctification of the believer, the complete work of Christ to be fulfilled in order that we might be presented, all of us, to the Lord our God on that day when that day arrives. It's a beautiful expression of being completely and so totally in love with Christ that love transforms you physically, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. In other words, as they're trying to say that all of us would be whole, it's talking about all of us. It's not a, a fancy way of trying to break down whether the the construction of humanity is a tripart reality or a bipart reality, as they talk about in theological circles, is simply saying, by saying body, mind, and soul, that all of us, all of us would be set apart, separated for Christ. That we would not withhold what we think from God, what we feel from God, how we live in our physical bodies from God, or how we move about emotionally amongst the people we are, but rather we would open our whole selves to the very and only one thing that can sanctify us, and that is the grace of God. Now, if you go back in 1 Thessalonians before these verses, you'll see the exhortation that Paul makes to the church and a lot of commands, a lot of exhortations and encouragements to live the way that Christ lived. Then after he gets through with all these individual things, he's saying what I'm really telling you is to be completely in love with Christ, to let your whole life be permeated by the grace of God. You can't achieve entire sanctification any more than you can achieve salvation in Christ. The only way we are saved is by grace. The only way we are 
sanctified is by grace. The only way that we become completely body, mind, and soul, if you will, wholly attuned to Christ, is when we cooperate with the grace that God has given us. Now, it's not a passive kind of grace where we just kind of walk around and say, whoop, there comes in a little grace, and there comes in a little grace. Now, I'm feeling more and more sanctified today. No, it doesn't work that way. We wish it did, don't we? No, there are things we can do to enhance our reception of grace. There are things we can do to put ourselves in a place or position of grace. There are things, indeed, we must do if we are to be sanctified in Christ. Things that will not magically happen. Things that we are waiting to happen, but they require our receiving of it. And it is hard to receive grace in the world in which we live, is it not? It's hard. I mean, everybody wants our time. Everybody wants our thoughts. Everybody wants our money. They're just grabbing at us. We're so busy, we, don't, we can't even spell it anymore. We are people who are working in a whirlwind. And most of it is not working toward becoming like Christ, is it? There's the catch, right? There's the glue. We need to reorient ourselves to a different kind of lifestyle so that we might become more and more open to the powerful working of grace in our lives. God will not force it on us. God is too loving and kind for that. God wants our intentional response to him to be open. He wants us to be teachable because we have decided to open our minds to the purifying work of his word. He's not going to force it on us. If he didn't force it on the first people, he's not going to force it upon us. But we know signs of that sanctifying grace in people when we see it, right? In a few moments, we're going to call the names of our own saints who have gone before us in death. Now, each and every one of them that you have known, some of you have known, like me, some better than others. But every one of them has lived out for you in their body, in their life, with their mind and with their feelings, with their body and with their thoughts with their body and certainly with their spirit, the way in which Christ has touched their lives. You have seen and bear witness today to the sanctification of God in their lives. And we're not saying they're perfect without any flaw, without ever any mistake, but what we're saying in some way, they touched us in a way that only they really could. Now, of all the ones that I was touched by, and I was touched by this list for most of them I've had the opportunity to know, no one touched me more. And that little man named Wes. Because Wes used his body and his thoughtfulness, his mind, to emotionally project his sensitivity, his feeling toward me in the flesh as the Spirit of God gave him breath. I never walked in that door that I wasn't embraced by an unabashedly, unashamed man who would say, I love you. How are you doing? I'm glad to see you. Eighty-some-odd years old, running circles around the rest of us in church to make sure everything was ready for this moment. Now, there are others who did the same thing, but for some reason, his love always touched me because it was so transparent. It was so genuine. It was so, if you will allow me to use the word, sanctified by Christ. 
I never thought there was a genuine thing in his mind. And the night before the final surgery, on the last day of his life, we were talking about that surgery that was coming up. For him to live was to have the surgery so he could keep doing the things he wanted to live. And if not, that's what he told me as we got ready to pray and for me to leave. He was never afraid that death could come at any moment. Because he said, it already has tried to get me a couple of times. But if the Lord is ready, I'm ready. And the day came when his last day on earth was soon after that. I'll never be the same because I met him. I'll never be the same because I met Gene Gordon, who was a pastor when I was a high school student in Farmersville, Texas. The first man who preached about love week after week, and he always did it in 15 minutes. Obviously, I'm only half the man he could be. <laughs> but he said it so eloquently and so beautifully week after week after week, and he showed it by the way he paid attention to the high school and the junior high students around him. We all stand witness today as we come to this table of the beauty of sanctification in people's lives. Always an ongoing work. Completed maybe for short bursts of humanity when they could really be all about God, but constantly at work trying to have more and more of those bursts so that they might become entirely sanctified in order that Christ might present them to God blameless at their full glorification when they stand in the presence of God as the person that God created them to be from their birth.